Last week we introduced 1 Samuel by highlighting the horrid spiritual condition of God's people in, the, in this time that this Old Testament story begins. And then we noted how very similar our own society's spiritual condition is. Paying particular attention to the Supreme Court's decision of legalizing same-sex marriage. We closed by emphasizing that we must encourage one another by demonstrating patience and a steady confidence in the sovereignty of God, in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the authority of Scripture. In other words... We must turn our eyes toward the Savior and remind ourselves that when He returns, everything will be made right. Understanding the context of the faithless times in which 1 Samuel is set helps us get a much clearer picture and a deeper appreciation of how God unfolds His plan of redemption. Because we see God raise up a man who was both his judge, really the last judge of the judges, and prophet. In other words, into this faithless, unbelieving time, God raises up a man who serves in the major role of the transition period of Israel going from being led by judges to being ruled by kings. This is an incredible story. There are three main characters who appear in 1 Samuel and several others whose lives literally astound us. First is Samuel, the last of the judges and a great prophet. First Samuel gives an account of his whole life, beginning in chapter 1, and Samuel dies in chapter 25. The second main character is Saul, Israel's first king. First Samuel gives account, an account of his whole life. He's introduced in chapter 9 and dies in chapter 31. The third main character introduced to us in chapter 15 is David. David, of course, would actually assume his kingship in in 2 Samuel, but he's going to go through all kinds of fierce trials as Saul seeks to kill him here in 1 Samuel. So one of the most important things God communicates through his word here in 1 Samuel is what real faith, what real genuine faith looks like in faithless times. The three main characters or leaders in this book provide quite a series of contrasts in this regard. Samuel is a man of God's word marked by obedience, hearing, speaking, and obeying the word of God. Saul is an impressive man, and he's marked by self-reliance. David is an impressed man, 
marked by faith because he's impressed with God. In other words, David was marked and dominated by his regard for the Lord, while Saul was impressed with himself and wanted everybody else to be impressed with him as well. David, you see, was impressed with God and wanted others to regard the Lord first. And we will see over and over and over again how David was just overwhelmed with a concern for God's honor and prerogatives, for God's, in God's activities and purposes, and God's name and glory. Which is what real faith looks like in faithless times. Being concerned about God's honor and prerogatives, God's activities and purposes, and God's name and glory. That's our call. While faith and sin are contrasted in all the stories of these main characters here, in 1 Samuel and also in 2 Samuel, and as you'll remember from last week, if you were here, and most of you probably already know this, First and 2 Samuel were originally one book. The overriding message that comes through loud and clear is that, and this is what we have to get, despite all the sin and the consequences that sin brings, what we see here in these books is that God will rule and overrule so that his long-term purpose of world blessing and redemption may occur. Do you want to follow and serve and worship such a king? See, that's the point. Two examples of this. We see in 1 Samuel that Israel's sinful desire to be like the other nations around them and have a king is actually used by God to usher in the Davidic line through which Jesus Christ would come. God overrides their sinful desire and gives them a man after his own heart in 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen. And we also see in 2 Samuel, David's sin with Bathsheba, which resulted in tragic consequences for everybody concerned, but it's Bathsheba who would give birth to Solomon, again in the line. So let me say this again, maybe it'll hit. The harder this hits, the better we'll remember it. God will rule and overrule so that his long-term purpose of world blessing and redemption may occur. Dale Ralph Davis reminds us what First and Second Samuel are really all about. He writes, this is not really about David at all. It's not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom He will preserve his covenant people. And that's the perspective that we must have as we begin this journey. This story begins with one of those 
incredible other lives in this book. Hannah, a barren wife. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 8. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is nothing boring or dull about this book. Or any of the characters in it. In the very beginning, we were confronted with one of the most amazing women of faith in the whole Bible. Her circumstances and family situation immediately grab our attention. And probably evoke all sorts of of compassionate emotions in our hearts. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Got it? Now see if you can do this for yourself. There was a certain man of Amarillo of the Panhandle of Texas whose name was Bobby, the son of Robert W., the son of Clinton, the son of Watson, the son of, I don't know, a Yankee. Don't worry, my mother's family was from other parts. That's just to identify with all the people from Minnesota here. Can you do that? Now, I didn't try to do any research on this, as you can tell. 
which would have pulled my great-great-grandfather's name out of obscurity, but you get the point. Instead of being mainly concerned about how to pronounce all these Hebrew names, we should see if this verse gives us a little insight that will help us set the stage for the story. And we know because it's in there that it does. There are three things that we can find out about Alcana here. First, the Reformation Study Bible notes that by saying there was a certain man and then following that with a short genealogy suggests that this guy was not a slave or somebody of low means, but probably a man of standing and means. And second, we find out where he lived. Ramathayim Sophim in the hill country of Ephraim, which nobody really knows exactly where that is today, but there's some good guesses. This is not the same Rama that's famous, because Rama is in the land of the tribe of Benjamin that's usually talked about in the Bible. But anyway, here's what we can come up with. Ephraim is one of the land allotments of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's sort of in the middle of all the others. Um, you can look at your maps if you've got maps in the Old Testament that list where the land of the, of the 12 tribes were. Usually they're colored, and you can kind of tell where everything is. The hill country of Ephraim, if you look at it or go there, it's actually a lot like central Texas. The town mentioned here, Ramathayim Zophin, is usually not found on any maps. But if it is, it's usually in kind of the central western part. And remember, everything in Israel is really close together. It's only a couple of miles any which direction you go. And there's some indication that that Ramathayim Zophim is actually talking about some twin hills or some kind of double entendre there about what it looks like. Anyway, it's a little place in the middle of nowhere. Well, not in the middle of nowhere. You understand. Third, we see Elkanah's lineage. And it goes back to Zuth, an Ephrathite, which makes Elkanah and his soon son-to-be, who is who? Samuel. That's the story we're getting ready to hear. That they are also Ephrathites. Now get this. An Ephrathite is not an Ephraimite. But where is this town? This town is in the land of Ephraim, but he's not called an Ephraimite. He's called an Ephrathite. So this family was originally around Bethlehem in Judah. And you can check all this out, but it's, it's quite an excursion through genealogies and maps. Some more digging tells us that Zuf was of the tribe of Levi. So he's actually in the priestly family. Not living where most of the priests came from originally, but that's what the genealogy says. And he's descended, get this, from the clan of Kohath. And that we find that in 1 Chronicles 6, about 33 through 38. And you know what that family was originally charged with was guarding the ark and serving as the tabernacle gatekeepers. 
So keep that in mind. Verse 2 we read, very short sentence, He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Enter the problem of polygamy. We first see polygamy in Genesis 4.19 in a descendant of Cain named Lamech. Bruce Walkie writes that in God's common grace, family life is enjoyed by unbelievers as well as by believers. Common grace. But in Cain's family, there are polygamists and self-avengers, is what he calls them, as epitomized by this guy named Lamech, who represents both a progressive hardening of sin as seen in polygamy, and a grossly unjust vendetta in which he boasts about killing a man and actually writes a song about it. You can read it there in the text. God's design for marriage and the marriage relationship has never changed from one man to be married to one woman, as we see specifically in Genesis 2.24, In other texts like Ephesians 6, and we see, especially in the elder qualifications, it's actually spelled out. Interestingly, we see that divorce and remarriage are allowed in both the Old and New Testament, but only with certain strict criteria and circumstances. And how did Jesus answer that question in the New Testament. Remember in Matthew 9, 19, 8, he says that it was Moses allowed that only because of the hardness of the human heart. It's also interesting that polygamy is not God's design, but what gets us as we look into this is that it's never condemned outright other than by the strong positive assertions of marriage being between one man and one woman. So one one theologian was asking this question and wrote, could this also be because it too was put up with, which is kind of the phrase that's being used by Jesus because of the hardness of heart, just for a while, in this period of history because of the hardness of the human heart. It's also interesting that he doesn't answer that question, he just poses it. Elkanah's polygamy was probably provoked by Hannah's inability to bear children, which threatened both economic hardship and the cutting off of his name and lineage. And these issues were also present with numerous other Old Testament figures, as you're probably well aware. The average man did not even have the means to consider polygamy, which was the blessing of being an average man at that time, because of the consequences that we see every time we see a polygamous family. So this seems to be a practice, as we look 
only even considered by those who had the means to support another wife. Even though the Old Testament never condemned polygamy outright, the practice itself is always seen as causing incredible conflict and difficult family issues. In fact, it was the Old Testament word for dysfunctional, if you want to put it that way. Like patriarchs Abraham and Jacob before him, Elkanah took a second wife to bear him children when his affections remained fixed on his first wife, Hannah. And everybody in here knows that that equals trouble. No peace. The straightforward consequences seen in the examples of polygamy should speak volumes to the hazards of trying to change or update God's original and never-changing design. Just look at what a disaster David's family became because he too, although a man after God's own heart, did not pay heed to the explicit warnings for kings not to add many wives that we see in Deuteronomy 17, 17. The king shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. David's son, Solomon, you can't even count. And now the introduction we see of of Hannah's great problem, which was barrenness. Penina had children. Penina's name means prolific. Hannah's name means gracious. Her womb was closed, and that seems to correspond to Israel's spiritual condition. Many women who suffer this condition often wonder, in fact, I'd be surprised if anybody didn't, often wonder and try to come to terms, which is very difficult, with how God is involved in all this. But in Hannah's case, we don't even have to ask that question since verse 5 tells us straight out that the Lord had closed her womb. So what's really going on here? Can Hannah's barrenness parallel what God is saying about Israel's spiritual barrenness? Because many times we see in the Old Testament that God does this. Some of the strangest things in the Old Testament happen because God is picturing through a present circumstance what his relationship is with the people that he called to himself. How will Israel's spiritual condition of idolatry and lack of trust in God manifest itself in the chapters ahead in this book? Will it demand be a demand for a king like all the other nations around them? Yes, it will. So, Is what's going on with Hannah a whole lot bigger than we first thought? Is this just about her and this family? Will God use Hannah's condition and her anxiety over it to demonstrate 
how a barren spirituality should respond to God Almighty in prayer and worship? You bet. And if at first you're wounded and distraught and hurt by her condition, it'll help you understand this whole thing a lot better. So don't be afraid to think in those terms. Will God use this story of someone, and here's the key, someone completely unable to do anything about her condition and situation to work mightily in advancing the redemptive plan in Christ. Let's see. Because we all know that that's kind of a redundant question because the answer is, well, yeah, now that you mention this, I can see that's exactly where God is going. Verse 3, 4, and 5. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Did you catch that? All her sons and daughters. Prolific. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had though the Lord had closed her womb. So in this dark time of unfaithfulness, when the people have been described as forgetting the Lord, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship the Lord and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. What does this say? about him that even though he lived in faithless times he did know enough to know he needed to regularly and faithfully worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the tabernacle and the ark were and how is the Lord described here we go, Lord of hosts, no big deal. Oh, yes, it is. Because the Lord of hosts here is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty is usually how it's translated in English. And this is the first time it's used in the Bible. And it's used 230 more times. This refers to God's command of armies, all armies especially the legions of the heavenly hosts. It describes omnipotent power. And you're going, that's two words that say the same thing. It's for emphasis because that's how putting these two words together for his name, that's what they imply. God's omnipotent power over all earthly and heavenly powers. It specifically says that this is who was being worshipped and sacrificed to. That is important because they had, what would you say, 
what kind of view of God did they have? Down here, kind of a sidekick, or was their view of God way out of sight, where it should be? And we see also that Elkanah loved Hannah, even though the Lord had closed her womb. Although on the day of sacrifice he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion. And we can see right here that this was what we would call a trigger for the fireworks to go off between these two women. So what else is going on? Verse 6, 7, and 8. And her rival used to provoke her grievously. Grievously. To irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart said? And every woman in here is going, this guy does not get it. You're right. But look what he says. You can read between the lines. What does he say? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He's trying to say, I, I love you big time. And she's going, yeah, but there's this issue here. Why do you think I'm like, haven't you seen what's going on? Where were you when she did, okay, you got that whole thing? And we all understand that, don't we? But can you imagine this is the atmosphere of this family all the time, but especially especially when they went to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle? Dale Ruff Davis, and, and this little imagination, imagining conversation here is, is all over the place. It almost... Half of the people I read had quoted Del Ralph Davis here because this is so poignant. He helps us imagine how utterly unbearable Penina's assault on Hannah must have been. There's no place in the Bible that says this, converse, this, this dialogue actually took place, but this helps us picture it. So get ready because this hits home. Now, do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? Can you say that a little louder? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah? Oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children, too? Well, Mommy, doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? Well, because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? 
Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? You think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? Now, anyone in here that is in this situation or you know somebody that is, know that those questions are like sharp daggers that go straight to the heart of anybody, any woman who is barren and would like to have children. There's probably nothing closer to a gal's heart than this particular issue, especially in this day. That's that's the atmosphere of this home. And we don't even need to define what the word provoke and grievously mean. Because we know the deep agitation of the heart and the joy out of trying to, to, to stick that dagger in there and wound and hurt and what that feels like. So this is a, there's a warning here, obviously, for all of us to suffer in the most tender part of one's nature is no doubt a heavy affliction. And one writer says, but if you have a heart eager to inflict such suffering on another that is far more awful. You may succeed for the moment and may experience whatever of satisfaction can be found in gloated revenge, but you have been chasing a viper in your heart that will not content itself with fulfilling your desire. It will make itself a habitual resident in your heart and will distill poison all over it. That's our warning. Notice, notice that Penina's provocations are said to have occurred while at the tabernacle for worship. So what can we learn from that? Well, the outward show of religion, she was there. She was sacrificing. without an inward correspondence will often be a mask for the most spiteful of hearts. Second, our our spiteful, and many times this happens just just by being insensitive or clueless in in an arena. True? True? And I think every woman in here understands this, especially, but the guys should too. I mean, it's easy just to get all excited for so-and-so and not realize that somebody's there and you say something, you know, that's supposed to cover all the bases and that person is just so wounded they can't even be there. We've got to realize that those spiteful or insensitive words can drive other people to despair. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And third, the place place that should be where hope reigns is often turned into a place of distress, as by Penina. I was encouraged by reading several pastors who wrote commentaries or read some sermons on this very passage, and they were 
quick to say that's one of the biggest reasons why congregational worship should not be happy slappy because everybody's not we're sinners who come with hearts that are burdened and hurt and what we need to hear is the gospel of grace and God lifted up in all of his power so that everyone can rejoice in the midst of that even the despairing heart and what we've got going on now in the church across America is worse than happy slappy it's happy slappy entertainment and people that do not come in able to thank God that morning and want to go because they want to see God lifted up and hear the gospel applied to their hearts are driven to despair when they look around in such a setting and what do they see? What do they feel? What do they hear? What's wrong with me? I can't sing this ninky song yet. But they want to. They want to. They want to. So all of us have to be on board with with this and it's a great warning in our passage to each one of us. Elkanah asked Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? And we're not going to get to the next paragraph today. That's the next time we're here. But you, if you've read this, you know what's coming and how her cry is so incredibly focused to the Lord of grace and mercy. And as I just said, the church sanctuary is sometimes the most depressing place for those who feel singled out by their trials, though it's supposed to be the place and should be the place, and it is the place they most need to be. Realizing this, we as Christians are reminded to be thoughtful of the afflictions of others, to be sensitive to our conduct and our speech, and while rejoicing in our own blessings, which we need to do, right? To go out of our way to provide heartfelt sympathy and support to people who are grieving at the same time. Now we'll pick up this story at verse 8 the next time we're here because we want to go a little more into what Elkanah said. But for now, we need to realize that even in this state of barrenness and being the brunt of fierce and brutal provocation that deeply hurt and agitated her heart, Hannah goes on in the next paragraph to cry out to her Lord instead of just giving up and disappearing or trying to get rid of this other person. And without being able to fully grab hold of it yet, Hannah's place of being completely unable to do anything about her situation actually does what? This is what each and every one of us must come to grips with in our own lives. It actually is what drove her to do exactly the right thing. Her absolute inability to go anywhere else to find a solution drove her to cry out to the one who is the only solution, the only hope. 
And that sounds simplistic, but it's not, is it? It's not. In other words, when God's people are without strength and without resources and without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. This doesn't guarantee in this situation, if we apply it, that every barren woman who cries out to the Lord will be able to have children. He may have many other solutions to that problem. But he does promise to be her all in all and to walk with her through it to show her himself so much that her heart is comforted and the bleeding stopped. You see, this is a message. And it's really a great message to hear as we're forced to consider current events and the future of our precious kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and our friends and family and whoever. Once we see, which is what we're, why we're stopping here, once we see where God often begins, we'll understand how we can be encouraged. These are not soundbite solutions, are they? This is usually how God works so many times with us. And if we know this is oftentimes where he begins, then instead of fretting about it and going crazy about it and losing everything about it, it allows us to take a deep breath and just realize how great our God is and that he is not asleep, and that he has not gone on without us, that he is working. And then we start to see the curtains pull back even more and more, and we see how great he really is. And if you want an example of this, think Lord of hosts, commander of all the heavenly and earthly forces, powers, or whatever, and he's it, the king. And that ought to help. And that's who they are going there to worship. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're confronted here with some situations that we think we can't even relate to, but we really can on the level of hurt, pain, sin, provocation, maybe circumstances, things we don't understand completely. You've allowed us to see so much of that. You know, God, we pray that as we look, that, that we won't quit trying to understand, but that we will, we will get our understanding in the context of who you are, how great you are, and what you have done to redeem us in Christ Jesus, your Son. That's our prayer. And as we continue going through this book and as we continue with the coming week with a missionary family that is dear to us, we pray that you'd open our hearts and eyes to see how you work and what you're doing and 
one of the most turbulent areas on the face of the earth. And we pray that you put our hope in the right place in you. And you'd help us see that the gospel is your power for salvation. We ask that in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? And let's recite again uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Let me just remind everybody uh, once and then we'll do it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. There's one left. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be with you all. So let's say that together. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.